And I pray now that we'd understand who he is better, your purposes for us in Jesus, and open this text to our understanding and to the understanding of those who are yet in darkness and know not Christ as Savior. I pray that it would be a source of persevering strength to those of us who do. Meet with us here for the glory of your name, we pray through Christ. Amen. Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, opens with this memorable sentence. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. A cynic might wonder if our age is gutted of all of Dickens' hopeful terms. Even if untrue, it seems we inhabit the worst of times. The age of folly, the epoch of unbelief, the season of darkness, the winter of despair as we slouch as a culture towards Sodom. Sociologists indeed speak of this time, their words, as the age of despair. An era of hopelessness fueled by a crisis of meaning, a crisis of authority, and a loss of purpose. People do not know why they get out of bed in the morning. It's an age of despair. Spoiled, pitied, and coddled beyond reason. We have everything we want, yet want nothing that we have. Ephesians 2.12, the Apostle Paul described natural man as having no hope and without God in the world. This hopelessness generates aimless, restless, unhinged souls, resembling boats that have slipped their moorings and bob about on the waves as a hurricane nears landfall. Hopeless despair in the face of pending ruin. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, think about it. We've gathered today in this age of despair, in this hopelessness, to sing glad songs of hope. Not in the world sense of the word, I hope that I win the lottery. Not some subjective, wishful kind of hope that fears we, what we most want, we are quite unlikely to get. Not that kind of hope. No, our hope is anchored on the solid rock of God's promises. Those promises rooted in his holy perfections. Our hope provides firm anchorage for our souls. We come with our feet on the ground, on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is a hope that fills us and bursts forth in real song. How blessed we are. And the author of Hebrews is the foundation of this hope, at least in this particular place, as we come to chapter 6 and verse 13 today. This passage, verses 13 through 20, at the end of chapter 6, serve as a sort of bridge. You remember 
last week, those with us, we looked at the warning, very stern warning to continue in the faith and not to pull off the road or fall off the road into the despair and to the ruin of apostasy, chapter 5, 11 to 6, 12. Now this section bridges to chapter 7, where he will pick up again the emphasis on Christ's priesthood and for several chapters. So in that stern warning of 5.11 to 6.12, we're warned not to fall away from our faith in Christ. But remember at verse 9, remember how he began to bend the conversation away from that warning. And verses 9 through 12 mark a decided shift in emphasis as the author moves from warning to encouragement. He rejoices to see fruit in their lives, and that gives him confidence that they are not of those who will fall away into apostasy, but they will continue on in the faith. And that fruit in their lives is an evidence that encourages the author. He says in verse 10 of chapter 6, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. That's not you're working to get your salvation and you're pretty sure to earn it. It's not that, but it's God sees the love that you have for him. He sees the work that you do for him. No one else may see that, but he does. There's an evidence that you're alive. There's growth in your life. There's movement in your life. And I rejoice in that. God sees it. He will reward. And I want us to note two words, verse 11 the word hope, and verse 12, the word promises. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So keep your eyes fixed on the end. Look to the hope that is before you. Don't pull off the road. Stay with it to the end so that, verse 12, you may not be sluggish. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. But rather than spiritual sluggishness, that you would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You're not going to set a new course. You're going to walk in the steps of those who have trusted the promises of God to the end. And I'm encouraged by the way of your witness, by the way of the witness of your life, that you're on that path. I rejoice. So through faith and patience, they inherited the promises. In verse 13 now, the focus shifts from the Hebrew believers and their part in the equation, so to speak, and God's part. So he, just, he keeps moving from the danger of apostasy to the evidences of what is good in their life, and now ultimately to the solid foundation of who God is and what he does. That's where it really all resolves. So maybe last week, as we looked at a, at a difficult passage, and a passage that can even be fearful, perhaps you say, I'm not on that road. I'm not following Christ. Or maybe you were fearful in the face of the text of last week, that perhaps I am in danger of falling away. I am spiritually sluggish, and I am susceptible to that apostasy. For those of you that know not Christ, for those of you that are struggling in that relationship, and for every one of us, this is where it resolves. 
not in our performance, not in our trust that we will carry on, but in our confidence in God and his word. It is his promise. It is our trust in him. It is in what Christ has done. That's where it always resolves. So come to that today, even if you're fearful. Come and find the hope that is in Christ. As we move to this passage then, we find a page from salvation history. First, he's going to just look back to the example of Abraham and demonstrate again what they knew very well and what we know very well, that God keeps his promises. May he be praised for it. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Surely is a really wimpy translation. The Hebrew, or the Greek text rather, is blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. It is a way of underlining and bolding and shining light on this. I will do this. You can trust it. Verse 13. In fact, as we look back to verse 12, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, Abraham is exhibit A. We're going to pick someone out of the scriptures that's a man of faith that is certainly him. In the earlier reading of Genesis 15, we considered one installment of God's promises to Abraham. It was a covenantal ceremony, and you saw there that splitting of the animals. I mean, what on earth is going on there? We just work with paper. Or maybe not. It might just be electronic in our covenants. But in their covenant, they took some animals, split them in half, set them on either side, walked down the middle saying, essentially, if I break this covenant, may I be like this animal. Slaughtered on the side. That was the idea. It was, it was graphic. You didn't forget it. We can go back to our computer and find the document was there and we can find the proof. But that's a way to get their attention and to keep it in an in ancient world. God walked between those parts and he established his promise to Abraham. It was a picture of his absolute fidelity to his word. God adorned his promise to Abraham of a great offspring also by swearing an oath to him to this effect. And that speaks to us of Genesis chapter 22 God promised in Genesis 22 and before that Abraham would have a son. The problem was, as we know, that Abraham's wife Sarah was infertile and both of them were beyond the age of producing children. God says this, but here's the reality. We can't have children. But God says we will. And that offspring will come from our bodies. You know how long Abraham waited for that son? 25 years. It's a long time to believe God wasn't messing with you. And he didn't just speak wrongly. 25 years, he did what verse 12 says. With faith in God's word, he patiently waited to inherit the promise in God's time. Then in a stunning, heart-wrenching move, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice that very son, Isaac, his only son, to fulfill the promise. 
First, it sure didn't seem like they were going to have a child, but they trusted God. And now God says this, one son of promise, take his life. Sacrifice his life to me. Demonstrating robust faith in God, which is hard for us to really even fathom. He trusted God to raise Isaac from the dead. And Abraham was poised to obey that horrific command and to take the life of his son. We come to Genesis 22. As we know the story, God stops him. And in that context, he says, By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Blessing, I will bless you. And, I, and multiplying, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's not a, a because that this wouldn't happen apart from this particular situation, but they're all connected together, his obedience to the promise of God. I swear my promise will come true. It's an act of condescension for God to swear an oath. God supported his promise to Abraham with this oath, and swearing an oath in the ancient world involved invoking the name of someone who is greater than you. He had no one greater, however, to swear by, verse 13 says. But when people would swear an oath, in that setting particularly, uh, they would say something like, on the honor of this greater person, I provide proof of my promise to you. To break such a promise was to dishonor the name of that greater person, in a sense even to invite their wrath. So oath-taking in that day was serious business. The problem was, of course, God has no greater name to speak of. He cannot take an oath in someone who is greater than himself, and so he swears by his own name. To Abram, to Abraham, I will sustain the son, and through him will come many, many peoples, through him, there will be a blessing that comes to the earth. There's something subtle going on here that's just genius. It's, I mean, it's inspired by the Lord, but the author's using his mind and is up to something here. And it's really interesting to note. This idea of God taking this oath in Genesis chapter 22 is going to be linked to Psalm 110.4 where God swears an oath that the greater son of David is a forever priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's an oath in Psalm 110.4 and there's an oath in Genesis 22. He's preparing us. He's setting us up to understand this connection, though not explicit here at this point. But we're moving there as we get to verse 20 and, and beyond. So it's an ingenious way of stitching together the theme of oath in these places and more on that theme in the days to come. But just be thinking about it and connecting to it. He comes back to the oath that when God promises something, he delivers. 
When he swears an oath, it can only be by his own name. And he does so with respect to Abraham. And he does so with respect to the greater son of David. That's the idea. Now, how does Abraham respond to God's promise? Verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He waited, he trusted, he depended on what God had said, and eventually he obtained that promise. It's like he reached the destination of this son, and the son of that son, as Abraham realized God's promise had been kept. Now, Abraham did not live an easy life. I think we would all understand that if we're awake at all as we read the text of Scripture. And this promise from God, I would also say, does not uh, come quickly. We may never understand why God works so slowly, but from our perspective, he does. We journey through a veil of tears. Some of you are going through that veil of tears right now. As you deal with physical trials, you deal with the loss of loved ones, as you deal with challenges in your life that are bigger than you can handle, Abraham understood that world. He walked through it in many, many ways, under many, many trials and challenges. And God just takes his good old time. He just doesn't act like we want him to act. He uses these trials over time and he uses this call to patience in our lives to learn to trust him more deeply, more profoundly. And as in the way through is to look and hope to God's promises to us. The very deepest trial that you've ever faced or the deepest trial that you're facing right now, the suffering that you're going through right now, the promises of God are crucial to getting through. You must set your hope on what is in front of you. What is on the road ahead? He promises never to leave us or forsake us. Set your hope there. He promises to work all things together for our good, no matter how vicious and harmful the suffering. Set your hope there. He promises to prepare a home for us and to bring us into his eternal kingdom where there are pleasures forevermore, every tear wiped dry, every malady fixed, every need met, every problem solved, and his presence with us as a source of unending joy throughout all eternity. That is his promise. Set your hope there. There's a lot of negative to see here. There's a lot of suffering to endure here. But that hope is on the horizon. And God will keep his promise. Yet he takes so long. Does he not? You might even say today, he's not working all things together for good in my life. Just isn't. Look to Abraham and use that brother to help us along the path and to say, hang in there. Patiently endure. Keep your focus on the hope that is set before. He will deliver. It's hard for us because we live in such a fast-paced world. 
With clicks of our finger, we can have people bringing us food and things to the front door and accomplishing things that in the past took weeks and months, if you could ever figure it out. We can get on a screen and have it figured out in three minutes. And if that screen bogs down for five seconds, you look at your own heart. Maybe you're all more sanctified than I am, but if that thing stalls for five seconds, I'm getting frustrated. Like, what's wrong with my computer? Five seconds. How do people like us wait for God? As he takes years. Sometimes we don't even see the fulfillment of our promise in this life. That's why our hope is set in the future and we say, wait patiently. May God infuse into us in sanctifying strength the ability to wait on God. This leads to the next point, having drawn material from the example of Abraham, the author now notes the relevance of this story to us. And we find here a call then to new covenant believers, hold fast to the hope of God's promises. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So he's just going back into the example of Abraham and now reflecting upon that as it pertains to us. Back to this point of swearing by the greater one. This, verb, uh, th- this verse uses terminology that would have been heard in the ancient Near Eastern court systems. The word confirmation refers to a legal guarantee that is sealed by an oath always invoking a higher authority. People are liars, as we know, of our own heart and we know by experience. So swearing by Yahweh in the Jewish culture was employed to settle a matter. If you said you were going to do something, you established a contract, a covenant, agreement, a promise, you swear by Yahweh and that covered it. If one invoked God's name as a legal guarantee, then broke that oath, he was charged with taking God's name in vain, which would incur God's wrath, if not the community's wrath, and usually both. This was a serious business for Jewish, ancient Jewish people, to swear by the name of Yahweh was to really stand up and say, let it come down on me. If I fail, this is where you get this kind of ceremony of splitting animals in half and say, may I be like them if I break my word because I've sworn by the name of Yahweh, the greatest name. Where are we today? I don't know if it's your experience, but it certainly seems to be mine that people just are really good at lying. People swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and immediately proceed to lie right through their teeth. The fact that they do not fear God's judgment does not mean that they are not liable to that judgment, just as an ancient Israelite who swore in the name of Yahweh. If God does not punish them, it's not because he's not there. It's because the judgment's coming. Lying is a bad, bad practice in a world run by a God who cannot lie. 
who is the truth. But back to Genesis 22, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God did not need to take this oath for his sake, of course. He did so for Abraham's sake. That's clear here in verse 17. God did not swear an oath to prop up Abraham's faith, however. He swore as a joyful response to the faith that Abraham had demonstrated in being willing to sacrifice Isaac. So God's oath was calibrated to display to Abraham and to Isaac and to us the unchangeable character of his purpose. You see that there in verse 17. The unchangeable character of his purpose. That is the unmovable, unchanging, utterly trustworthy will of God to issue and to deliver on his promises to his people. Now here's the application to us, verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let's look at the first part there, verse 18. So there are two unchangeable things. I take that to be God's promise, one, and God's oath, two. Neither one could possibly be revoked. So God, in a sense, plays two parts. He is the one who issues the promise, and he is the one who swears to to guarantee that promise. He does this as the sovereign God who works all things according to the purpose of his will. And he does so as the God who cannot lie. Could cross-reference Titus 1-2. Now look at the second half of verse 18. That's fairly clear there. These two things, the oath, the promise. There were the promise, then the oath. God cannot lie. This will come true. He will keep this promise. Verse 18 For this purpose, so that, dot, 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 we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The promise of a son to Abraham prefigures the salvation that we have in the eternal son who came to crush Satan's head. Under a new covenant, we have fled from this hopeless world languishing in the crosshairs of disaster. We have fled to Christ for this refuge and this salvation. We found in him weary, harassed, broken souls, a castle that is strong. We've come to Jesus as we've sung strong and kind. And we've found a haven. And in light of God's oath, I remember this, Light of God's oath. Remember, the text is moving toward the focus on the oath that Christ is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, in keeping with the new covenant. In light of God's oath concerning Christ, we have found our soul's refuge, and we are encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before us, to set our eyes on Christ in his risen, reigning place, and to set our confidence there as we deal with the storm of life all around. We cannot lose sight 
of that hope. This is the main point, to hold fast to the hope set before us on which this whole passage hinges. We must honor God's promises by holding firmly to that hope set before us. So biblical hope, let's be just a little more clear on it. Biblical hope is that as I look down the road into the future, God will fulfill his promise there and it then changes the way that I live. When I know that vacation is coming in two days, those two days are lived differently than other two days. There's hope. I'm getting there. There's something to look forward to. We press harder, right? We say there, there's some joy out there ahead of me, and it, and it helps us to manage the challenges that we face between here and those two days. Now, as I said, God, from our perspective, operates very slowly. And it may be all of life. But when our hope is truly fixed there in the future, that his promises will hold true, it changes the way that I live today, if I really believe that. So I live each day believing I will die and I will stand before Christ to give account. At the judgment seat of Jesus, I will stand. I live each day knowing that when I stand there in Christ, I will bow the knee in homage before that throne. I will confess that he is Lord and Savior with joy of heart. Philippians 2.10 I live knowing and believing that before that throne, the redeemed of the Lord will stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Free from sin, free from guilt, free from condemnation because of Christ's saving work on my behalf, because of his oath and covenant. And I live today knowing that I will live in Christ's eternal kingdom. Here in that kingdom, there in that kingdom, I will enjoy deliverance from pain, disease, loss, sin, and every tear of sorrow will be wiped away forever. That's the hope on the horizon. That's what he has promised. He will bring it about. We must walk in faith. That's our hope. And look what that hope accomplishes in the life of the true believer. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It anchors our soul in this age of despair. We have feet on solid ground. This hope keeps sorrow and suffering in proper perspective. It tempers their influence over us. My life is no longer aimless. Personally and corporately as a church, we've left despair behind. It comes in. Satan whispers it to us. We can give in to it sinfully, certainly as well. But we've left despair behind. We've found a refuge in Christ. There is a hope on the horizon ahead. And I drive toward that hope. There's something then outside of me, adult class, as we looked at today. There's something outside of me. There's something above me that gives me meaning and solidity to my life. This hope puts my feet on the rock of Christ. 
giving me purpose as a child of God. And as an ambassador, I see myself that way. I'm passing through. I'm coming to final accounting. That's my home. That's where I stop. So Christian, let's all stop here. Let's revel in this. Thank God for this anchor of the soul that I trust by faith you have. Let's perceive the wonder of living every day of our lives with a hope on the horizon ahead. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's the promise of Christ. Those who, may, who mock us and say, you've just got your head set on the future. You're just trying to forget what's going on around you. What they're saying is you've come up with that on your own. To satisfy the suffering and the difficulties that you're facing. To just try to forget what's going on in your life. And we say, no. This is based on the oath of Christ. It's based on His promises. And as Abraham trusted for Isaac for 25 years, we may trust for longer than that, that His word will come true. We believe it. We know it. And it's an anchor for our souls. What an exquisite gift from our Lord and Savior. How meaningless then. Think of this in the light of this hope, in the light of what he's promised. Think of this. How meaningless and senseless in light of this hope to seek security in money, in health, in success, in possessions, in chasing godless pleasures. All of these can be snatched away in a moment of time. Nothing can steal our hope that anchors our soul in Christ. Story I've remembered for many years. It's a classic, but Max Lucado tells the story of a crusty old boatman in Florida who was prepping for a hurricane. So he's in his boat on the water, probably in a bay or something. I don't remember the story but, uh, that well, but uh, he's prepping for this hurricane, and Lucado is a young adult, pretty clueless about what he was doing. He had a sailboat, and he tied it to trees on the land. And the old crusty dude looked at him and said, not a good idea. That hurricane, he called it a cane. <laughs> he was used to him, but he had to use shorthand. He talked about him so often, but he said, that, that cane can knock those trees over, and so to speak, your boat will be like a slingshot. He said, what you want to do is anchor deep and hold on. Anchor deep and hold on. That is that anchor, that heavy metal anchor going down under the surface. You never see where it's going. You won't see what it's connected to. But get it to hold fast on some rock below into some solid earth below. And that cable holding the boat in one place, that hurricane can beat you, the wind can come, the waves can come, you'll bob all over the place, you'll be sure you're going to die, but that boat stays in one spot. Let the hurricane beat it. Anchor deep and hold on. The Hebrew who received this message for the first time were being pummeled by the hurricane. It was at least coming and soon to make landfall. They were starting already to feel its effects. And some of them were tying their hope 
to the trees of a Jewish faith without a Messiah. And this author's saying, anchor deep and hold on. Anchor your soul in the work of Christ and do not let go. And in a similar way, an anchor's dropped into the sea. You can't see where it is. You know it's doing its job down there. And so it is with the Christian life. Our anchor is not something we see. Verse 19, second part of the verse. He says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is as solid as the name of God. This is an anchor point which strangely doesn't go down in the water, but goes all the way up to heaven. It's like we take our anchor and we seat it in the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, and we stay tethered to that hope. He mixes this all up here as he talks about an anchor from the sea. But yet it's an anchor that is set in the Holy of Holies above. It's an interesting connection. So just picture it. I don't want to play it out too far. But it works for me. Just think of taking that anchor and with all you've got to throw it up to heaven and it lands in that Holy of Holies and you hang on to that line for the rest of your life and nothing moves you. That solid line to God, to the hope, to the promises that he will fulfill in eternity and you hold on. Now again, we can, we can misunderstand that and say it's all about me holding on to the cable and not letting go. No, he holds on to us. But we too have that hope secured in that inner place. We'll get into the tabernacle more as we talk about the high priesthood of, of Christ. Notice here that he is the forerunner. That is that others will follow. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We follow him into that throne room now through prayer. And one day we'll enter that very presence through the portal of death, which we no longer fear, for death is gain. So let's say this together, Church of Christ. God never lies. He never lies. God is never thwarted in his purposes. And through the substitutionary death and vicarious resurrection of the Son, our Lord has secured for us, for those who are genuinely born again by the Holy Spirit, great and precious promises. They're on the horizon. They will be fulfilled. We must trust them. Through Christ we enter Abraham's family of faith. And are thus called to hold fast and set our hope before us where the Lord is. We live in a world that is debilitatingly riveted to the present. And obsessed with past suffering. We too must face today squarely. And we too must come to faithful terms with past suffering. Not to dismiss either. But the past and the present are kept in proper perspective when that cable is firmly fixed in the throne room of God where we anticipate by hope the fulfillment of his promises. That future focus keeps everything in perspective. 
So I ask, to what degree does your confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises change the way you live today? Eden Baptist Church, are we holding fast, for instance, to these promises of God? They reach a pinnacle in this text of the Bible at this place. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us on his promise? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, everything that we need to persevere to the end and to enter the presence of Christ? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies promise. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We're like sheep being slaughtered. We're there for the slaughtering all day long in this world. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise sealed with an oath by the great high priest who intercedes for us. Set your hope there and it will change your present and it will filter your past. Hope in Christ. Anchor deep. So I say by way of benediction and blessing to us all, in light of these great and precious promises, in light of this solid ground and this anchor point of life, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May he help us abound. Father, we ask you as we pray to the interceding Son, as he conveys the message to you, the Father, through the Spirit, in ways we don't fully understand. As the Spirit pleads now in our behalf with groanings that cannot be uttered, with prayers and petitions for each of us where we are that we cannot articulate ourselves. We pray that you would help us to persevere, to set our hope in what is to come and to allow that hope to filter all that we suffer now and have suffered in the past, and that we will endure in the faith, putting your name first at every turn of our lives. Lord, for those who know not Christ as Savior, may they come to find this anchor point of the soul. May they come to terms, even now, in the quiet of this moment, to say, I'm unmoored. I'm bobbing on the sea, and the hurricane's coming. I'm not ready. Lord, may they become ready by anchoring deep in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
May they trust him today. And may those of us who are trusting you today set our hope upon your promises, fulfillment in the future. Do this in us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.